the book of Matthew was written with a specific audience in mind. All of the Gospels were. Um, the book of Matthew represents his burden to reach the Jews with the truth, the understanding that this Jesus of Nazareth was and is their Messiah, their King of Kings. And that's the thrust of the Gospel of Matthew is that, is that the Jews recognize Jesus as their king. And so you read it from that perspective and things tend to, to pop out at you. This was Matthew's burden, which also happened to be in line with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And his use of genealogies was what I'll call supernaturally strategic. When we read the Old Testament, we tend to think of the end of the Old Testament as the book of Malachi. But in a Jewish thought, the end of the Old Testament actually falls in those genealogies that you see in the Chronicles and things like that. They are really, really interested in their lineages. This idea of the ten lost tribes of Israel is not true. They've never been lost. God's always known where they were. And they have very comprehensive records. It's interesting. When you get into the New Testament, you find out that, you know, um, one person was from the tribe of Asher. One person was from the tribe of Benjamin. One person was, you know, a Levite. Uh, Barnabas comes to mind. That sounds to me like they did still know what tribes were what. They have kept track of these things. In fact, what's interesting, if you were to take a trip to Israel, which right now probably wouldn't be advisable, but if you were to take a trip to Israel and you were to sit down with the people that are part of what's called the Temple Institute, they are making all kinds of plans for the temple that's not yet built. They've already made the menorah. They've already made the implements of the temple. They, they've already put together, um, put together uh, clothing for the priests. They've, they've already bred the red heifer, which will be needed to sanctify all of this stuff. They've already done all of this. And I know a man, his name is Joel. I know a man that sat down with the chief rabbi and asked him, all right, what do you do about the Levites? Oh, we know who the Levites are. We got all that in the works. They're on top of these things. Why? Because they're really big on lineages. And Matthew knew this. And what did Matthew do? Matthew began his gospel with a list of names. And the whole point was, if you're a Jew reading this gospel, right off the bat, you are confronted with a three-pronged proof that Jesus is the king of that has the right to take over David's throne. Now, most of us in here, maybe none of us are Jewish. Some of you may be. But most of us are Gentiles. And all of us that are saved are part of the church. So we can't necessarily take that Jewish perspective to heart. But there are applications for us. So what is it? Well, I believe there's a lot of them, but I'm going to focus in on three. Three applications this morning. And what we'd like to do in Matthew 1, verses 1 through 16, is we'd like to take just a little bit of time this morning and learn from the Lord's lineage. Learn from the Lord's lineage. You understand that this list of names is taking us from Abraham, which, by the way, every Jew would start with Abraham, from Abraham to Jesus. 
So Lord, would you help us this morning as we seek to learn from the Lord Jesus' lineage? Would you help me to stay focused and on point? There's other things I've asked you for this morning, Lord. I pray that you'd grant that if it's your good will to do so. I pray, God, that you'd speak to our hearts. If there's somebody here that needs to be saved, I pray they trust Christ before it's too late. I pray that Christians would be helped and that Jesus would be magnified. Use your word and bless it. Get me out of the way any way you need to. And speak to us in an unusual way this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Verses 1 through 16, we see the lineage. We'll not read it again. Um, but hopefully you've had a chance to peruse it and see all these names, three groups of 14. Now, let me go ahead and tell you, there are some names missing, and that's on purpose. That's, that's not a mistake. That's, uh, Matthew is organizing this in a certain way, numbers and letters corresponding and all that kind of stuff. We're not getting into all that. The point is it was on purpose. He's, Matthew didn't forget about some people. In fact, what's interesting is he added some people that other parts of the Scripture don't really talk a whole lot about, but everything was on purpose. He gives us the three groups of 14 that God wanted us to focus on this morning okay and uh and so there's three things we want to draw from this learning from the lord's lineage here's the first one again i'm not i'm not uh starting everything with the first letter i don't know what's happened to me what's overtaken me i have slacked off as a preacher i suppose but here's the first thing that we need to learn this morning god uses the unexpected God uses the unexpected. Let's be honest. We have in our minds the idea of the kind of people that God uses and the kind of talents that God uses and the kind of gifts that God uses. But when you look through this list of people, you find God using people you never would have thought he would have. In, in, these, in these three lists of 14 generations... What's interesting is, wedged in there are four Gentiles. Now, the Jew reading this in that time would have been like, well, I never. Peter had a problem with that. Peter didn't like Gentiles. Most Jews didn't. But God makes a point to remind his readers in the very line of Christ, in the very line of people that give us the physical incarnation of the Son of God, four of them were Gentiles. But that's not all. He makes a point to mention by name those four who are women. Now you say... Well, of course women are in his line. You kind of can't have kids without men and women. By the way, you can't have kids without men and women. Everybody understand that? I'm not going any further than that because not everybody's in children's church this morning. But you got to have male and female to reproduce the human race or pretty much anything else for that matter. I thought that was assumed. I thought that was understood. But apparently not. So, of course, there's women in the line of Jesus. But here's the thing. You didn't mention them. Now, what I'm about to tell you is cultural. It does not reflect anything that I believe myself. But just to be safe, I'm going to hide behind the pulpit while I tell you this. (laughs) Making sure that, well, my head's still going to be up here, but... In that culture, 
Jew or Gentile, either one. In that culture, for the most part, women were thought of as, as less than men in most instances. Their, their testimony was not admissible in court. They were not considered full-on citizens. They had a lot of restrictions on them. And in some cases, they were even thought of as property. And so when you, when you listed things, all that really mattered was the men. But God steps in and says, I got news for you. The women matter too. And I'm going to give you four of them who, by the way, also happen to be Gentiles. So the two things that would anger a self-righteous Jew the most, that you mention Gentiles and that you mention women, God hits them with both at one time. What do we take from that? God is beginning to help us understand that what we think God uses and who we think God uses is not really what and who he uses. We have this idea that you've got to meet this level or hit this criteria or have this talent or be from this group for God to use you. And none of that is biblical. None of it. Who will God, what ability does God demand to use anyone? It's availability. That's it. And I've even seen him overcome that. Cyrus wasn't necessarily available, but God made him do what he wanted. Hmm? Maybe he'll do that with Congress. Maybe he'll do that with our president and our Supreme Court. They might not be available, but where they don't let God rule, perhaps he'll overrule. And he's done that before. Now, what we can't take from this is that anybody can do anything. There are some guidances in Scripture as to who can do what. Let me enter into dangerous waters again. The Bible's pretty clear, and by pretty clear, I mean absolutely crystal clear. Ladies, as good a preacher as you may be, and there's some good ones in here. I'm married to one of them. You can't pastor this church. Because I'm lesser? No, because God said so. Okay. Um, There are limitations. But then again, men, we have limitations too, don't we? If I were to come to Brother Davies and say, you know, my one life's goal, I just want to be a mother. Guess what? I can't be. I'm limited. You know? God's limitations and God's requirements and God's instructions have nothing to do with your value. They have nothing to do with who's better than who. They have everything to do with God's expectation. And I'm telling you that this idea that men are to do everything in the church is not scriptural. But I've got preacher friends of mine. All they let their ladies do is bring food for fellowships and clean the church. That's not scriptural either. God has endowed every one of you in here with abilities and talents and experiences and burdens that he intends for you to use for his glory. 
So why then isn't God using everybody sitting in this room? Because some of us have not positioned ourselves to be used. Do not think we are able to be used. Do not want to be used. Could I put it this way? Some of us need to prayerfully consider moving from spectator and attender to being involved. God, God wouldn't want to use me. There's not much to me. I'm telling you, God uses the unexpected. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 27, But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are. Why? What's his whole point here? That no flesh should glory in his presence. I get, it seems lately, I get daily reminders of how bad I am at my job. Why in the world am I here? Because God uses the unexpected. All of us have limitations. All of us have things that, that, that we feel like keep us down. But I'm here to tell you that, that, that God wants to use you. That's the first thing we learn from the Lord's lineage. Number two, God has thought of everything. <laughs> well, duh, of course he has. But do you really live like it? Do, do we not sometimes act as though God's in, he, in heaven wringing his hands wondering what in the world he's going to do? Can I remind you, friend, God has thought of everything. How do I know that, this genealogy? You go through and you see the line of Christ through Joseph. But what you don't realize is... There's a fellow in here, Jeconias, who's also called a couple other names, Kaniah and a couple others. And back in Jeremiah 22, God put a curse on this fellow. Thus saith the Lord, verse 30, write ye this man, speaking of Jeconiah, write ye this man childless, a man that shall not prosper in his days, for no man of his seed shall prosper sitting upon the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. Jeconiah, you are so bad that I am laying a curse on you and everybody from your lineage. None of your offspring are going to prosper on the throne of David. None of them. Now, when you look at this, you see that he's mentioned in verse number 11. This includes Jeconiah. This curse thwarts the efforts of anyone claiming right to David's throne. And we read this and we're like, oh no! God messed up. God boxed himself in. Do you think he was remembering what he was planning to do when he put this curse on Jeconiah? Or do you think maybe he just got a little bit out of sorts and laid the curse on him and then later said, oh man, what have I done? I've now messed everything up. We all know that that's not how God works. We all know that God doesn't make mistakes. We all go, know that nothing ever occurs to God. Nothing ever surprises God. God never boxes himself into a corner. You see, when you read Matthew 1, what you see is the legal line of Joseph through Solomon. 
Joseph had a legal right to make a claim to the throne of David. A legal right. Problem is, that fellow Jeconiah. Is Joseph a descendant of Jeconiah? Yes. So, would that mean that Joseph is under the curse of Jeconiah? Yes, he is. He's never going to prosper as a king of, in the, on the throne of David. God said so. Man. But how many of us know that Jesus wasn't Joseph's boy? Okay, well, that's all fine and good. He was adopted, fostered, if you will. But, but, he still has to have a physical right to the throne. And when you go to Luke chapter 3 and you look at that genealogy that's there, you know what you find out? Mary is a descendant of David too. Only Mary didn't come through Solomon. Mary came through David's son, Nathan which means she avoids the curse of Jeconiah. So here you've got someone who has a physical claim to the throne of David. And because he is the foster son, the adopted son, but not the seed of Joseph, he also has a legal claim to the throne of David. Why? Because God thought of everything. The virgin birth is critical for our salvation. We all understand that. If Jesus carries a sin nature, he can't be our savior. But it's also critical to his messianic position and and sitting on the throne of David. Jesus is the only human, granted he's the God-man, but he's the only human who has the legal and physical right to sit upon the throne of David. There's only one person who can assume this, and his name is Jesus Christ. Why? Because God thought of everything. Now, let's apply this to us. What sticky situation are you in? What curse is upon your life? Can I just give you just a blanket statement and you apply it whatever way the Holy Spirit tells you? Your God has thought of everything. Nothing has has surprised him. Nothing has caught him off guard. He knows everything he needs to know about your situation. We're trying to learn from the Lord's lineage this morning. Number one, God uses the unexpected. Number two, God has thought of everything. And then number three, grace will not be impeded. You can try and get in the way of grace all you want to. You will not impede it. You will not stop it. You will not overcome it. You will not best it. Let's look at this list of people. If we could borrow from Mr. Eastwood, we'd have to say we've got a list of the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll we'll stop with the good and the bad. Now, when I say good, I mean righteous in that they were believers and that they were saved by Jesus Christ. 
This does not mean that they did everything that was good. For instance, we begin with Abraham. We all understand Abraham was not exactly perfect. Starters, he married his half-sister. Sheesh, Abraham. Of course, back then that was okay. Not anymore, though. But then he lied. He lied and told her to tell Elimelech that you're my sister. That way, if he decides he wants you, he won't kill me. He'll just take you. Well, that's husband of the year material there, isn't it? By the way, she was probably in her 80s when that happened, so she must have been quite a looker. When God promised them they'd have a son and God took too long in their thinking to uh, fulfill that, he uh, went ahead and went in into his, hand, his wife's handmaiden, Hagar, and they had Ishmael. Again, husband of the year material. So why would we say Abraham was good? Because the Bible says that Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. See, friend, you're not saved because of the things you do or don't do. You're saved based on whether or not you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Now, does that mean that once you're saved that God's not going to have some expectations for your behavior to change? Of course he will. The right belief brings about the right behavior. But friend, if you're trying to get to heaven based on what you do, you'll never make it. You'll never make it. Abraham wouldn't have. Abraham had issues. How about Isaac? Well, Isaac started off great, but he wasn't exactly father of the year material, was he? Esau was his favorite, and all of them knew it. Jacob, good night. His name meant supplanter, liar, trickster, and yet he was righteous. But now we're getting into guys that they did live it. Boaz, a righteous man who it appears as though lived it pretty well. Ruth, David, man after God's own heart, who happened to be an adulterer and a murderer. David, Bible David, not that David. He was good people. But Solomon, boy, Solomon. His life was kind of a bookend. Started and ended really well. The middle, pretty, pretty sketchy. 700 wives, 300 concubines, worshiping all manner of false idols. That's, that's a pretty bad section. But I believe he's in heaven. Asa, Jehoshaphat, Uzziah, except for that whole intruding into the priest office thing. He did pretty good. Hezekiah, Joatham, and Mary's husband, Joseph. These are good people. These are people that I believe are in heaven that, that took advantage of the promise of Messiah, be it before he came or after he came. Okay? But then you got guys like Rehoboam, Abiah, Joram, Ahaz, Manasseh, Jeconiah. These were guys that by any standard by any standard were wicked wicked you've got Tamar 
who tricked her father-in-law into an affair by pretending to be a harlot to get what she wanted. You've got Rahab, who when they found her, was a known harlot. Ruth, we tend to give a pass, but can I remind you that Ruth was part of a culture, the Moabites, that were known for their wickedness and carnality. And it stands to reason she was probably in the middle of it. Bathsheba, not solely guilty in the affair with David, but certainly partly. Now, God worked in all these ladies' lives, thank the Lord, especially Ruth and Bathsheba. But what do we take from this? You look at the, at the, at the, at the, the thousands of years from Abraham to Joseph and all the wicked people that are in that line, you would think at some point somebody would have done something, decreed something, enacted something that would have messed this thing up. And yet, on that evening in Bethlehem, Jesus was born just as God intended. Why? Because grace will not be impeded. But there's sin all through this. I mean, you've got, whether it's David's adultery and his murders and Abraham's lying and and the sacrifices of guys like Manasseh, which included the sacrifice of their own children. You got all this wickedness, all this horrific stuff. You would think that somewhere along the way it would throw God's plan off, but I've got news for you. Paul said it. Romans chapter 5. Where sin... Abounds, grace doth much more abound. Crank the sin up if you want to, and you'll suffer the consequences thereof, but you will not diminish God's grace in the slightest. Because grace is always going to be bigger. Grace is always going to be stronger. Grace is always going to be righter. That's how I can look at God and say, Lord, I'm such a loser sometimes. And I fail you so frequently. And I I come up short time and again, and I disappoint you, and I disappoint myself. How in the world could you save me at all, let alone use me in in any profitable way? I'll tell you how. Do what you want, but grace will not be impeded. Oh, there's consequences when we do wrong, sure, but it doesn't change the big picture. Right now, we've got people in D.C. and other places that are angling and finagling to to heap 
power upon themselves. They're trying to position themselves here and get this people over here to do this and slide money over here in this direction. And yes, as voters, we ought to step in on that and do what we can to put an end to that kind of thing. But I got news for you. No matter how many backroom deals happen, no matter who goes into the White House, who sits in the Supreme Court, who's the Speaker of the House, who's the President of the Senate, no matter who runs the committees, no matter who's passing the legislation, I got news for you. None of that worries God because his grace will not be impeded. God has a plan. He wants you to be part of it. But if you won't, he'll work around you or in some cases through you. Because grace will not be impeded. So, what? All right, Andy. We've read all these names. I don't think you pronounced them all correctly. I think you made some of them up. Maybe. But what do we learn? Well, we've learned that God uses the unexpected. In case you're wondering, that means you. Doesn't mean the person sitting next to you. Doesn't mean this person sitting behind you or in front of you. God will use you. Question is, do you want him to? Hmm? If God can use Tamar and Ruth and Rahab and Bathsheba and David, and Abraham, God can and will use you. The question is, what what are you satisfied with? Are you satisfied to attend? Or have you realized it's time for you to serve? We've also seen that God has thought of everything. There is nothing too big for him. But you don't know what kind of situation I'm in. I, I may or may not, but I don't have to know. Here's what I know. God told Jeremiah in chapter 32, 27, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? Oh, Lord, you messed up with that Jeconiah curse. No, I got that figured out real easy. A little girl named Mary is going to come from Nathan. We got it covered. Last thing. Grace will not be impeded. God has positioned us in the presence of grace as the only thing that can help us. Forgive me for sitting. If you're here today and you've never trusted Christ, there's only one thing you need. It's not what you need more than anything else. No, there's one thing that you need today. You need grace.
But Andy, you don't know what I've done. His grace won't be impeded. You don't know how far I've gone. His grace won't be impeded. Now, are there consequences for our choices? Yes. I'm not talking about that. Let's say that you got, you got under the influence of something. You passed out on the railroad tracks with your arm laying across the track. A train comes and severs your arm, and you get saved. Is your arm going to grow back? No. There's still natural consequences for our choices. That's just living in this world. That's how it is. But I'm telling you, if it's your soul you're concerned about, if it's a matter of going to heaven versus going to hell, if it's a matter of knowing Jesus as your Savior, grace will not be impeded. I watched a documentary of Ted Bundy the other day, and he claims to have gotten saved not long before he was executed. I don't know if he did or he didn't, but I know this, he could. A mass murderer like that? If he repented of his sin and called upon Jesus to be his Savior, Ted Bundy, for all of his wickedness, woke up in heaven. That's right. Why? Because grace will not be impeded. That's right, preacher. And if you leave here today not saved because you think you're too far gone, it will not be because grace was useless. It'll be because grace was refused. Because God would have all men everywhere to come to a knowledge of the truth. That includes you. You're saved, you're on your way to heaven. You need His grace, but you don't feel like you deserve it. You don't. That's the whole point of grace. Grace, by definition, is God giving us something we don't deserve. I don't deserve His grace, and neither do you. So why do we ask for it? Because he told us to. What does he say in Hebrews? It says, come boldly before the throne of what? That ye might find grace, mercy and grace to help in time of need, right? You need grace today? It won't be impeded. Your sin isn't bigger than his grace, and it never will be. The only way that we could say that it is, is there does come a point in which his grace is removed. It's called the rapture. Or if you die, then grace is no longer a part of it. Only judgment. But as long as you draw breath on this earth, grace will not be impeded. All the wicked kings couldn't stop God's plan. And neither can you. I used to preach something that I'm kind of backing off on now. What? You liberal? You compromiser? No. I used to, because I was taught my whole life that if I'm not right with God, I could be holding you back as a church. And I admit that if I'm not as effective as I should be, that does limit you. But the fact is, I'm not big enough to stop what God wants done here. And if that's the case, if I am in the way of it, God will just move me out of the way. Well, I don't want to come to church. Roof might cave in on me. You're not big enough to stop what God wants to do here. So you come on to church and let me preach at you. Amen. Okay. Because grace won't be impeded. 
And way into my Bible reading, I come across these genealogies, name after name after name after name. What do I do? Well, first and foremost, always look for Jesus, because that's where all of them lead. But then look for lessons. Lessons in lineages. Let's stand together with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, please.